tune? Who can name the tune? Some a man of La Mancha? Some possible dream? Yeah, it's been around for about 40 years or so. And I actually kind of like the song. It may sound a little bit operatic for some, but it's, it's actually this inspiring song about uh, someone going on a mission and dreaming the impossible dream and seeking to accomplish that mission at all costs. If you know the story of Don Quixote, uh, this song is sung on Broadway by Don Quixote, by the character, and uh, it's about his mission. But if you know anything about Don Quixote's mission, it was uh, an imaginary mission. He he thought he was fighting dragons and so forth, and which really was windmills. But today I want to talk about a mission that is unlike any other, certainly unlike Don Quixote's mission. It's a real one. But unlike any other, it is the ultimate mission. Today's message is titled, um, Jesus, Unlike Any Other, for a Mission Unlike Any Other. We'll be looking at Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. And let us pray as we look to God's Word and consider our Lord Jesus, unlike any other, on a mission unlike any other. Lord, we just thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the truth in this passage, God. And, and we need Your help, O oh God. We need Your help to understand Your truth, Lord. Not just to understand it in terms of the grammar and what it says and all that, but Lord, we need to comprehend Your Word in, ter- in terms of what it means in Your mind and heart and what Your intentions are. What does it mean to us? And Lord, You are so interested, so eager to speak to us. We thank You that You've sent Your Son. And by His blood and righteousness, we come before You, welcomed into Your family, and now You want to speak to us. So we ask You to come and be here with us, O God. Come, Spirit of God, fill us up. Build us up in You. Magnify Your name through our lives, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. This is Isaiah 42. 1 through 9, the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through him about this servant whom we know as Jesus. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is My name. My glory I give to no other, nor My praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. As 
Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. This is a really an, an awe-inspiring picture of God's servant and the mission that He calls His servant to. It points to Jesus ultimately in this whole section in Isaiah. God is speaking about Israel, but then He's speaking about a unique servant who would carry out a unique mission and behave and live in a unique way. And He means ultimately the, the ultimate and true Israel. We learned some weeks ago about that in John 15 where Jesus said, I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. I am the one who's come to fulfill God's call in this way. And we learn about Jesus unlike any other in this section of Scripture. And we learn about His mission unlike any other. What I want to talk about today is that I want to spend time talking about the manner of His mission. How He went about doing it. I want to talk about the method of His mission. And I want to talk about the meaning of His mission. This verse is actually quoted in Matthew 12. If you want to turn there, you can see it. And in this section in Matthew 12, starting in verse 15, Jesus is doing miracles, and it says in the second part of 15, and many followed Him, and He healed them all, and ordered them not to make Him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in our passage. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spear upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. He will not, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Here in Matthew 12, Jesus is doing great miracles. In Israel, he's healing people. Other miracles are going on. And he orders people not to make him known. Not to go out and tell others about it. This is very peculiar. And so Matthew explains about Jesus by referring to Isaiah 42. This is a, a leader. This is a servant. This is God's man unlike any other. Because if you or I were seeking to accomplish a mission and we did great miracles, we would let others know. We would campaign. We would go out and tell everybody. We would employ marketing to let everybody know and to package it in a way that is attractive to gather a following. Yet this one tells people, don't tell anybody what I just did. Be quiet. Please, don't tell anybody. He's unlike any other. And he's described in Isaiah 42. So Matthew points to that. He points to Isaiah 42 to explain that this is God's servant. This is the one spoken of who in his mission would come and would behave very differently than what we would expect. A mission unlike any other. A Messiah unlike any other. So let's look at this passage to learn more about God's chosen one, God's servant, Jesus. To learn more about His mission. To learn more about His manner, His method, and its meaning of the mission. In verse 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, 
Behold. God says through Isaiah, Behold My servant. When God says, Behold, He says, check this out. Look at this. Listen up. Look. Behold. When God says, Behold, we want to behold. It must be something amazing if God says, Behold. He says, Behold My servant. God is amazed at this servant. It says, My chosen. This is the one. This is My chosen one. This is the one that I have chosen. This is the one that I have set my affection on. This is the one whom I'm looking to. It says, in whom my soul delights. When God thinks of His servants, He says, behold, this is my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Now Israel is the servant of God and was called to be that. And we, don't, we see God's love and His enthusiasm for Israel, but not on the same level as His enthusiasm for this one, this servant, this ultimate Israel. And this is the one in whom my soul delights. And if we look at the ministry of Jesus, we see the Father expressing that same sentiment, that same thought. Do you remember when He was baptized and He came out of the water? There was the voice. What did it say? This is my Son in whom... I am well pleased. This is the one in whom my soul delights. I delight in Him. And He was just starting His ministry. Later on, near the, towards the end of His ministry, He's transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what does God say from, from the, the clouds, from heaven? This is my Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the one in whom my soul delights. This servant, His Son, whom we know as Jesus, is the one in whom His soul delights. He delights in His Son and He's put His Spirit on Him and He will, through through the power of the Spirit and by God's call, bring justice to the nations. He's the Anointed One. We'll talk in a message in this series on encountering Christ in the Old Testament later on about Him being the Anointed One with the Spirit. But by the power of the Spirit, He accomplishes God's mission to bring justice to the nations. To bring a righteous rule to all the nations. The whole world. Well, let's look in more detail about this. This One in whom His soul delights. Who will be anointed and who will bring justice to the nations. Let's talk about the manner of his mission. It is very unusual how he goes about what he does. It says he will not cry aloud in the street. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This is an unusual manner to accomplish a great mission. This is He's supposed to bring justice to the nations. He's supposed to affect the whole world and bring His righteous reign to everybody, to the whole earth, to affect everybody through His mission. And and we know that if somebody were seeking to do that, if somebody was seeking to rule the world, how would they go about it? Would they be quiet? Would they not raise their voice in the street? Would they care about bruised reeds? Would they care about smoldering wicks? No, that's not how it works in the world. The way you do it is you you gather the strong and the influential around you. And you take over. Now, you can do that respecting the law and so forth, but that's ultimately how you do it. Whether 
You do it through a totalitarian re regime or through a democracy. You basically gather clout and you take over. I'm thankful for the election process. I'm thankful for our democracy and the freedoms and the benefits that we enjoy. But more or less, that's what's done. Politics are about gathering clout, speaking out, gathering people under your influence through the power of your influence, through the power of others. That's not how he does his work. That's not the manner of his bringing justice to the nations. It's entirely different. It's not boisterous. It's not self-promoting. It's not overpowering. It's not inconsiderate. It's gentle and merciful and faithful. It's persistent, gentle and merciful and persistent. He is unlike any other. Aren't you glad for that? Because his approach is unlike any other. To accomplish a mission unlike any other. He doesn't come as a militant king rolling over everybody in his path. He comes as a suffering servant. And we learned later, earlier in this series about that from Isaiah 53. He comes to lay his life down for his subjects to win them to Himself, that they might voluntarily, by the power of the Spirit, come and say, yes, I want to follow You. You are My King. So He lays His life down for others to serve. He's not interested in, in creating spin. Jesus would never be elected in our current state. He's not necessarily interested in that. Now, government has its role. I don't mean to disparage that. But his ways are different. His goals are different. He comes as a suffering servant. And he comes to the bruised reed. It says a bruised reed he will not break. What's a bruised reed? Reeds are those things along the water usually, right? That grow up. They're kind of hollowish and all and narrow and and if you walk around in the reeds, you'll bruise some reeds. You'll, you'll damage some of the reeds and they start to bend. They start to bend over. They've received the effect of you walking by them. They've been mishandled, basically. And it says that he will, he will, a bruised reed he will not break. So does that mean Jesus is really good at walking through the reeds? Making sure he doesn't break any of the reeds when he's out Duck hunting or whatever he's doing? No. What's a bruised reed in this passage? Is he speaking about actual plants? He's speaking about people, isn't he? He's speaking about people. He's speaking about how he will handle people. How he will relate to people. And you know what, folks? The reality is, is we live in a world that's full of bruised reeds. All around us. As a matter of fact, I would venture to guess that in this room there are a number of bruised reeds. And you will be a bruisery at some point in your life as well if you are not one now. The impact of this broken world, the impact of our own sin, our own poor, foolish choices, leaves us as bruiseries. Listen to a story about a bruisery that Paul Tripps tells. Actually, his dad. He says, My dad was a hard-working man, but he never saw much for his work. He didn't make a lot of money and we didn't live in a great neighborhood. We never had a big house. Despite all of this, he managed to save enough money for his first brand new car. 
He was such an excited man. He bought a two-toned 1959 Plymouth Belvedere, peach-colored with pearl-white trim. Two-toned cars were cool. This car had those big fins. It looked like a plane with an identity complex. It was a funny-looking car, but he was proud of it. It it had push-button automatic. You just press a button on the dash and it would go. They don't make cars like that anymore. He brought that car home on a Friday afternoon. Our our whole family walked around that car admiring its beauty. He let me, a nine-year-old boy, sit in the driver's seat and hold that great big white steering wheel. I thought, it doesn't get any better than this. He said, Saturday morning, we're going for a ride and I'm going to sign up Sign us up for AAA. He had dreams of driving that car around the country on family road trips using marked maps from AAA. When we got up on Saturday morning, he was in a celebratory mood, so he took us out for some good old-fashioned handmade donuts. He beamed as he looked out the window of that donut shop at his shiny new car parked alongside the curb. This car had power. It had push-button automatic. You could see the look of pride on his face. 59 Plymouth Belvedere. I made it. Finally, there's something I can see from all my years of hard work. We were proud of that, and we were proud of that car. We got back in the car and headed toward the AAA building in downtown Toledo. He wheeled that brand new 59 peach-colored pearl-trimmed big-finned Plymouth Belvedere into the AAA lot, got blinded by the morning sun, and totaled that car on a lamppost in the middle of the parking lot. <laughs> you have never seen such a slump-shouldered man. He slogged to the front door of the AAA to call for help, only to discover that it was closed on Saturdays. My dad stood in front of his one-day-old car that he had just destroyed. With fists clenched, he said, What in the world is going on? This doesn't make any sense. This man is a bruised reed. The hardship of life, sometimes humorous, sometimes not, had affected him. And whether it be the the circumstances that can occur to us or our own sin and our own decisions that affect us, we can walk around as bruised reeds. And the Savior comes and says, A bruised reed he will not break. It says earlier in Isaiah 40, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He comes to bruised reeds. He comes to smoldering wicks as well. It says he does not snuff out a smoldering wick Isaiah 42, words are slightly different than it is in the New Testament, but a faintly burning wick he will not quench in my translation. He comes not only to the bruised reeds, he comes to the smoldering wicks. Again, it's not about candles or lamps and wicks. It's about people. And smoldering wicks are people that have some life in them. They have the life of God in them. There is some faith there, genuine faith, real faith. But it's smoldering faith. It's barely alive. There's combustion going on, but it's not a full flame. It's just smoldering. 
And he comes to these and he says he will not snuff them out. He is not interested in snuffing out smoldering wicks. He comes on this mission to bring life to smoldering wicks. Not only do we see it here in Isaiah 42, we see it in the life of Jesus. As He ministered to people, He came to people who were weak and broken. You don't see Him snuffing them out. I'm sorry, I don't have time for any more healings tonight. No, He stayed up all night long to heal people. Sorry, buddy, you've been here before. Go away. No. The guy gets let down through the roof. Ruins the roof. That gets let down in front of him. You or I might have been, buddy, what are you thinking? You just ruined the guy's roof. No, he goes over to him and he heals him. Forgives his sins. Peter. Peter blew it. Peter walked with Jesus face to face. He saw the miracles. He knew who he was. And in his own strength, he said, Lord, though everyone else leaves you, I will never leave. I will not deny you. And what does he do? He denies him. There's only two places in the book of John where the word charcoal fire, it's one word in the original language, only two places where it's mentioned. It's mentioned as the fire by which Peter warmed his hands on the night of his denial of Christ. And it's mentioned at the end of John. The fire by which Jesus cooked the fish and prepared the meal after he had been raised from the dead. The fire, the same fire that Peter smelled the night of his denial, he smelled that fire the morning of his encounter with Christ. He had denied him three times. That morning the Lord restored him by asking him three times, Do you love me? The Lord knows that memories tied to smell very strongly, I believe. And so the same smell and that same horrid memory attached to that smell. Now he came to replace with a memory of restoration and commission. He doesn't snuff out smoldering wicks. Peter, I I would bet, was a smoldering wick up until that point. After his failure, his faith was small. A broken man, the Lord comes to him and restores him. He is in the business of fanning into flame smoldering wicks. Some of us may smolder for a long time. We may even smolder our whole lives. He does not reject us. The Scriptures teach us. Thessalonians, Paul tells the Thessalonians to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. God knows this. He wants to fan into flame that smoldering wick, that small faith. If you have faith, Though it may be weak, though it may be full of doubt, though it may go up and down, though you may wonder, is it real? Is there enough faith here? Is there enough repentance with my faith? He doesn't disparage that. He doesn't snuff it out. He comes to meet you and receive you. Because you don't need much faith to be attached to Him and to be accepted because of Him. Just a little bit of a smolder, a mustard seed. And that too is a gift, we know, from Him. So He comes to fan into flame. And the way that you get the flame going is not by thinking about being a smoldering wick. It's by looking to the One who is the fire, 
Looking to the one who is the one who comes to restore you. Looking to the servant, unlike any other. On a mission like any other. Unlike any other. Looking to him, that's how that flame is relit. And it says that he will not grow faint or be discouraged. He will be faithful. He will do this. It's who he is. He's faithful. He will accomplish this mission in his way. He will not fail. Thank God for that. He is committed to this manner. He is committed to his method. He is committed to the meaning of this mission. He will not fail. And he calls us to put our hope in him. This servant who is this way. And he calls us to be instruments of his mission. For his mission is not fully complete. He's still using us, still affecting our lives, and using us to affect others. He calls us to be just like him, not breaking bruised reeds, not snuffing out smoldering wicks, but encouraging one another daily as long as it is called today. We need each other. And that's why we as a church. Not only come together on a Sunday, but come together during the week in small groups. Because we need each other. Because we are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, and sometimes more so than others. And we need each other. And the reality is, unless you're just amazing and unlike anyone else I've ever met, if you're anything like me, you can't do life without that sort of help and encouragement that comes from the body. He's designed it that way. And so one of our chief purposes in our small groups is really just to come alongside and care for the bruised reeds. Listen to the smoldering wicks. Hear their stories. But not just hear their stories. Direct them back to the Savior who comes to, to meet us in our needs and to grant us overcoming life from Him. That's the manner of His mission. The method of His mission. It says later on, talks about, verse 6, how he will accomplish, what the core is. There's a lot of aspects to this, but the core, I believe, is talked about in verse 6. God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, speaking to the Son. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. I will give you as a covenant for the people. We've been learning in this series about covenants, right? Anyone want to try to sum up what a covenant is? Or any guess? Remember what a covenant is. What's a covenant? Agreement. That's right. It's a solemn agreement. It's a serious agreement. Uh, and in Scripture, it's an agreement before God. A solemn agreement before God. And we see these covenants throughout Scripture. We, saw, we talked about the covenant with Adam in creation, right? God made a covenant. He said... Be fruitful and multiply. I've come and I've blessed you. I've given you all this. And now be fruitful and multiply. Rule the earth. Obey me though. Don't eat of this tree. There was this covenant, this call to, to be a kingly ruler under God, ruling the whole earth. The covenant under Adam. We know Adam failed. We learned how Jesus didn't. Later on, there's the covenant with Abraham. We learned about that one. where That was a one-sided covenant. Usually covenants, there's an agreement. There are stipulations. There's blessing for obedience and, and penalties for disobedience. Abrahamic covenant is a one-sided covenant. God says, I will do this. I will bless you and make you a blessing. I will, I will make your descendants like the stars of the sea. 
Then we also see later that you talked about the Davidic covenant as well, right? The covenant with David. Was that last week we talked about that? Where he said, I will put a descendant of yours on the throne who will rule forever. And then there's the Mosaic covenant as well. Where God delivers them from Egypt. He's gracious. All these covenants are preceded by God's gracious action. God never calls us to obedience without grace being in the background. There's no two Old Testament, New Testament type division where now it's grace, it used to be not. No. It's always been of grace. He proceeds with grace and then He calls to obedience. It's the Mosaic Covenant as well. So these are the four, four major covenants. And what I believe God is saying about His servant and what we've learned in this series is that Jesus comes as the ultimate covenant keeper. In Himself, in His life and perfect obedience, in how He lived and what He was called to do and what He did, He fulfilled all these covenants. He is the embodiment and fulfillment of all these covenants. And He wraps them all together in Himself and in the new covenant. The covenant in His blood, He fulfills them all. He embodies and fulfills the covenant. And God says, I will give My Son as a covenant for the people. God calls Jesus to fulfill His covenant, the embodiment, the fulfillment of all the covenants He had called mankind to for the people. And so Paul can say, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the covenant, the the very embodiment of it. That is the method of His mission. By becoming this covenant, by going in in His life, living a perfect life of obedience, and then to the point of death on the cross, He obeyed, we heard about that in communion, to the point of death on the cross. Perfect obedience. He bore our sins and paid the penalty for disobedience to the covenants of all His people. So He fulfilled the covenants in both the stipulations to obey and in the penalties to pay. And then God said, Amen, I approve. And raised Him from the dead. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. Well, what does it mean to you and me? What is the meaning of this mission? What is the meaning of this mission? Well, we see later in the section in Isaiah 42. It says, verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God is accomplishing His mission for the sake of the blind, those who are prisoners in the dungeon. God is speaking here of those who are blind spiritually, who are imprisoned spiritually. Jesus says in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Does it say some who commit sin? Are slaves to sin? No. Does it say most who commit sin are slaves to sin? No. It says everyone who commits sin is a slave to sins. 
Sin, the Bible says, is lawlessness in John, 1 John 3. Sin is lawlessness. What is the law about? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Loving each other. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Sin is failure to do that. Both in attitude and action. And when we sin, because we sin, we become slaves to sin. It sucks us in and entraps us. And apart from Christ's work in our lives, we are slaves to sin. Whether we be extreme in our behavior or subtle. Whether we be someone who you know by looking at them that their life is a wreck or somebody who looks like they have it all together, but inside, they're either broken or self-righteous. They, either way, are a slave to sin. They are the ones in the dungeon, in the darkness. And it is to these that the Savior comes. He comes to the blind. He comes to those in the dungeon. He comes to the slaves to sin. All of humanity. He comes to rescue us from our slavery to sin. He comes to rescue people. And He comes by to do this in His manner and by His method. He becomes a covenant for the people. He gives His life for sinners like you and me. For His people to die for our sins. To break the power of sin in our lives. To pay the penalty. To earn the privilege to inherit the Holy Spirit. And to experience change, conversion, faith, growth. He comes, He Himself has come to rescue lost sinners like us. And He is faithful to do it. And if you are a believer and you are here today, it's because of Him, not you, that you are in Christ. He has sought after you. He became a covenant for you. The Father sent Him on His mission for you to rescue you from the darkness and from the dungeon and to draw him to draw you to himself he has come for you this mission is not outside of us yes it is and what he did you didn't have anything to do with accomplishing it but his purpose is for you to rescue you so that you could be his so that you could be forgiven right now clean Given. What does it have to do with you? Well, the most important thing for you, though you know it or not, though you feel it now or not, is your relationship with God. We know that other relationships are important. We feel that. We know that if we were isolated, life would be horrible. But the most important relationship is your relationship with God. And your standing before Him, your the status of your relationship is the very most important thing for you. On a Monday morning, you ever heard of the Monday morning question? What does it matter to me on Monday morning? It means everything. When you get up in the morning on Monday morning, your status before God means everything. And do you stand before Him on a Monday morning as a sinner blind, guilty of rebellion against Him, and on a path to eternal separation from Him, or because of the Son, because you've placed your faith in Him and turned from yourself, Because of the Son, you are accepted and all your sins are paid for and washed away. And not only that, all the things that you were called to do, all the things that God expects of you, have already been credited to your account. Jesus alone accomplished all the things God expected of humanity. And He will always and only be the one. You will never get close 
And so your status on Monday morning depends entirely on this truth that He has been given as a covenant for you. And so your righteousness, your right relationship with God, your right standing before God is entirely dependent on this. Yes, there is fruit that works out in your life. Don't deny that that is so important. But it stands on this servant unlike any other given for you. So, whether you feel it or not, that means a lot. And the other side of it is when you start to understand it, you do feel it a lot. It goes up and down, but your feeling about yourself and your life has everything to do with this truth. And if you try to stand on some false self-esteem, false identity, it's going to crumble sooner or later. God's in the business of making those things crumble in mercy and in truth. But if you stand on Him, you have a place to stand and to view yourself rightly and know that you're accepted. It means everything. And because you are accepted before Him, because He has given the Son for you, He is committed to you. That you would be forgiven and accepted and that He would conform you to the image of Christ. He is committed to that. You may or may not be committed this morning to that idea. But if you are His, sorry, whether you like it or not, He's committed to conforming to the image of Christ. And so He designs life to do just that. And not just individually, but corporately as well. For this being conformed to the image of Christ is not just about individuals. Yes, it is. But it's about us together. He wants to conform us to the image of Christ. So He designs life. He designs seasons. He designs relationships. He designs gifts to accomplish this purpose and to work out in us this truth of the Gospel to make us like Christ. So He comes to work. He comes to work specifically. And if the band could come up as we prepare to close. He comes to work specifically. He comes to failing marriages. He comes to failing marriages that they might receive the truth and the power to turn around. And to be places where there's love and peace, where there was conflict and anger before. Through the power of forgiveness, knowing that we're forgiven, And because of that, we have power and an obligation to forgive others. They're not to be forgiven in a forgiveness in a marriage. And because of his love filling our hearts, there's now the ability to love a spouse who is unlovely. Your love for your spouse is not to be dependent on your spouse's loveliness. I mean that broadly, not just physically. Your love for your spouse is a call of God, regardless of their worth. And by the power of the Gospel, by the power of Christ, He grants us that love to love one another. So marriages get turned around. Conflicts are changed as we walk in these truths. The workaholic husband is rescued from the prison of trying to please a boss or his own self-image and now has the ability as he trusts Christ to take the risk, perhaps of even being fired, to spend more time with his wife and kids. The worrisome mother starts to experience peace as she realizes that if Jesus has been given for her, certainly God will provide everything else that she needs. This has everything to do with life. It works itself out in every aspect of life. Bringing justice to the nations is not an ethereal concept. He wants to work it out in the nitty-gritty in our lives. And through us, we are called to be part of the mission. The final section we'll close with. 
Verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The end result of all this is glory to God. Because God expresses and shows and invites us in to His glory. His glory and His gentleness. His mercy. His faithfulness. His glory in giving His Son, giving Himself for you in His amazing love. His glory in redeemed lives. His glory in bringing true righteousness on the earth for this mission eventually will be complete. The bulk of it has already been accomplished in Christ's life and death. But through us, He is completing the whole thing and it will be done one day soon. And all the glory will go to God who has shown us His greatness and goodness through this servant unlike any other, on the mission unlike any other. So let us, let us just first marvel. Let us just first say, Jesus, You are unlike any other. Let us put our attention on Him and say, You have done it. You are the Savior. You are the One who has accomplished it. My hope is in You. Faith in the Lord isn't about mustering up faith and looking at your faith and trying to get it stronger. It happens this simple way. Get your eyes on Jesus. So, first, let us just worship. Let us just say, Jesus, You have done it. You are my hope. You are my strength. And then let us follow Him and say, Lord, whatever You want, whatever Your mission is in my life, however You want to conform me to the image of, to Your image, however You want to use me, conforming us to Your image. And Lord, I know Your mission is to save the lost, just like me. So use me, Lord, however You want in Your mission, unlike any other. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank You for who You are. There's no one like You. And I just pray, Lord, as we behold You, and the manner of Your mission, what You've done in giving Yourself as a covenant and the meaning for us and for the world and for the glory of God. Lord God, would You draw us into worship of You? And would our worship be experienced not only as just joy and singing, but in living as well? For You, Lord, we thank You in Christ's name.